You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Everything we think, we feel, we know comes from our brain. The human brain is the most complex form of matter in the known universe. I've studied the brain my entire life. My PhD is from UCLA's Brain Research Institute. I've followed the burgeoning field for over half a century, watching the new discoveries, ways of thinking, passionately attuned to the big questions. What is consciousness? Why are humans unique? How to explain self-awareness, personal identity, free will. That's why I'm paying attention to neuroaesthetics, a fresh new area of brain research. What happens in the brain when we appreciate art, when we create art, art in all its forms? In other words, by studying how art affects the brain, can we learn how the brain works? Can art explain the brain? Now, here's the explanatory challenge. Can we also go in the other direction? By studying the brain, can we better understand art? Can the brain explain art? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. Throughout the ages, questions about art were the province of art experts, art curators, art historians, philosophers, too. Today, contemporary brain research adds a new discipline to the study of art. I see its relevance in the multi-year, multidiscipline project of the Templeton Religion Trust, Art Seeking Understanding. I start with a neuroscientist focused on neuroaesthetics. He's a neurologist who works with brain-challenged patients, Anjan Chatterjee. Anjan, what can we learn about the production of art, about uh, aesthetics in general, from studying the brain? I'm trained as a neurologist, uh, and so there's a long tradition of looking at people who have had neurologic disorders of different kinds and seeing how their behavior changes uh, to make inferences of how a system works. There is a paradoxical phenomenon in which in some instances in the setting of neurologic disease, people's artistic proclivities and some of their artistic production changes and changes in a way that sometimes experts think they're actually better. And it's an extraordinary thing because you never get brain damage and your language gets better or your emotional regulation gets better, you make better decisions. But here's this thing that many of us regard as among the highest expressions of human flourishing, and how is it possible that that gets better? One example is that you can have damage to the left side of your brain and people have problems with language. The observation has been made in some artists that when they have damage to the left part of their brain, their artwork changes and changes in, in somewhat specific ways, which is that people tend to be in some ways looser with their expression. There is a particular artist uh, in California who talks about after having experienced the stroke that her process before that had been very 
uh, very meticulous, very organized. And after that, she felt a kind of flow. Her imagery changed. It was less structured, but in some ways, perhaps more expressive. So what would that say about, uh, A, the production of art, and B, how the left brain and potentially the right brain uh, work together in a, in a complementary or even inhibitory fashion? Yeah. My own view is that this notion that the right hemisphere somehow has a privileged role in art is probably wrong. That art really is a kind of coordination of different parts of the brain. Because that's the common oversimplification, yes. that the left side is rational and analytic and language, and the right side is artistic and free-flowing. Right. I think one thing it tells us is that the form of artistic production, uh, the the mechanisms in our brain are quite varied, they're distributed, and when you have damage to one area, you have the rest of the brain that can still produce art, but the nature of the production becomes different because certain channels are cut off. I think it also tells us something that maybe it's a mistake to think of art as a natural kind, as one thing. So for example, a Rothko may be very different than uh, a Dali. And the brain mechanisms used to produce a Rothko might be very different mm. than a Dali. Mm. And so that's the way in which we think you really are using different brain systems. So you can have damage to one, but the other systems can come into play. And in the normal case, you may have these different systems uh, interacting, facilitating, interfering with one another, uh, or competing with one another. Uh, sure, some artists change over time, right? Cezanne didn't change much, he kept refining what he did, but Picasso changed, right? So, you know, presumably what Picasso is doing is using different aspects of his cognitive mm -hmm. and neural systems mm -hmm. to produce different kinds of work. Yeah. And if someone is thinking or imagining or producing, say, representational art, it's going to engage different neural systems as uh, someone who's producing abstract art. And within abstract art, we've been interested in the difference between Mondrian's and Pollock's, right? Mm -hmm. One is fairly static and one is really dynamic. And, and we think that those have, there are different neural systems that are engaged in, in both the production and perception of that kind of art. We all often have different responses to different kinds of artworks. Interestingly, it turns out that if we are deeply moved, if we really enjoy an artwork, our neural responses are more similar than different, even though that might have happened with a Rothko for you and with a Hopper for me. Once you're in that state, uh, that our brains are responding in a common way. Uh, and so that's one way we can try to deal with variability uh, the, the, the general notion being the experience. When you, once you have the experience, we're going to be more similar to each other, <laughs> but the trigger for the experience might be, be different. radically different. Right. Four years. Four years. Different kinds of art, say the sound of music or the sight of paintings, is perceived or sensed by different parts of the brain. But the experience of the art, the emotional feel, that comes from similar parts of the brain. What a telling distinction. The sensory perception distinguished from the experiential emotion. This is the emerging field of neuroaesthetics. What literally is happening in the brain during experiences of visual and musical beauty? I ask a neurobiologist, a pioneer in neuroaesthetics, Samir Zeki. 
Well, neuroaesthetics is a relatively recent branch of, of neurobiology, which inquires into the brain mechanisms that are engaged when you see something that's beautiful or when you... Uh, beauty and allied experiences such as love and desire. And in a sense, people mistake it for trying to inquire into beauty, but it does not do that. Instead of asking what is beauty, we pare it down to something much more simple by asking what are the neural mechanisms that are engaged when you experience beauty? Well, this is now very, very similar and scientifically legitimate as asking what are the neural mechanisms that are engaged when you uh, experience color or when you see faces? Well, we know what a face is and we know what a color is, but how do you know what beauty is? Okay, I don't have a, a, a universal idea of beauty in my mind. Right. So I get subjects usually of all cultures and races because we're interested in what's common to all humans. Okay. Uh, and show them, let us say, uh, hundred paintings, mm -hmm. and they rate each painting according to how beautiful they uh, perceive it to be. Right. And then they come back into a scanner and look at the same paintings and re-rate them. Oh. So what you do is you compare brain activity uh, when people have rated something as beautiful against not beautiful, but without knowing with, uh, what they have rated as beautiful. Oh. And you do the same with music, and you do the same with mathematics and so on. So the question they've asked, which is a very critical question, is what is common to all that is experienced as beauty? And do you find similarities across modalities? There is one area in the brain, which is part of the emotional brain, which lights up whenever you experience beauty, regardless of its source, whether it's mathematical, so highly cognitive, or musical, or visual, or even moral beauty. Where, where is that? It's in the medial orbital frontal cortex, the between the two frontal. lobes, yes, just, just behind uh, here. It's fairly large, and there may be subdivisions within it, but at the moment, what we can say, there is a common area in all humans which is always active when they experience beauty. And what is more, the intensity of the activity in that area is proportional to the declared intensity of the experience of beauty. So if you experience something that's extremely beautiful, the activity in that area would be higher than if you experience something as of uh, moderate beauty. What is the contribution of neuroaesthetics to uh, two aspects? One is to the arts, and the second is to neuroscience. Because actually neuroaesthetics is constituted for understanding the brain, it's not for understanding art or beauty. So the question that philosophers of aesthetics have asked is, what is it that is common to all that is experienced as beautiful? That's a very important question. In fact, Clive Bell said, if you can solve that problem, you have essentially solved the problem of aesthetics. So the question he asks is, what is common to the windows at Chartres or Mexican sculpture or Persian carpets or the masterpieces of Cezanne? We can give you the answer to that, but only in the context of the brain. We say that what is common to all that experience is beautiful in all humans, regardless of culture and upbringing and everything else, is that the experience of beauty correlates with activity in a given part of the brain, and at that the intensity of activity is quantitatively related to the intensity of the experience of beauty. So although the findings in neuroaesthetics really are getting us to learn more about the brain, I should be very surprised if they don't eventually have an influence on the philosophies of aesthetics and on uh, trying best to understand what beauty is. That would seem to, to be... Neuroaesthetics is not an inquiry into the nature of beauty. It has no standing to define what is art. 
Neuroaesthetics, rather, is an inquiry into the neural mechanisms that are engaged when experiencing art. I cheer when neuroscience makes progress in explaining higher functions of human mentality. But do I root for the human brain to explain the entirety of the human mind? I'm conflicted. Could neuroaesthetics eventually explain all about art? I go to Los Angeles to put the question to a behavioral neuroscientist who famously can reduce pain in patients with phantom limbs, V.S. Ramachandran. Here we are in Los Angeles, uh, Academy Museum of Art and Rauschenberg exhibit, and uh, art is so important uh, in defining what it means to be human. H how can neuroscience uh, help without uh, destroying the mystery and majesty of art? Sure. How can you come talk about art when we have so, so much variation? Mm -hmm. Every country, every civilization, every culture has different type of art. There's Dada, there's Impressionism, Expressionism, Telem, Dogon, Indonesian art, all this stuff. And what, what, what could possibly have in common? The answer is yes, of course, you can have common laws which transcend these boundaries. What I call aesthetic universals, principles, universal principles of aesthetics, not only across cultures and across historic periods, across phyla. Because you find a butterfly pretty, not because a butterfly evolved to be pretty to you, but pretty to other butterflies. <laughs> this shows there are common mechanisms in your brain, which are fine, aesthetic mechanisms in the butterfly brain, in spite of diverging from each other 600 million years ago. You find birds of paradise attractive. Birds are attracted to other birds, not to you. They don't care about you. You find them attractive. So this, I rest my case, the universal principles across cultures, across historical periods, across species. What are those principles of aesthetics? I made a big list of them, but I'm going to talk about just one principle. There are obvious principles like symmetry is beautiful. We all find symmetry beautiful. It's universal. Why? Again, the biological reasons. But let's talk about peak shift. If you show a rat a wrong, long rectangle, give it cheese, it eats the cheese and avoids the square. It goes towards the rectangle, avoids the square. If you give it a long, skinny rectangle, it goes even more to that than to the original rectangle. And you say, that's kind of stupid. You talk to the respondent rectangle, hey, why is it preferred to bring a longer, skinnier rectangle? Yeah. <laughs> it's not stupid. We've learned a rule, rectangularity. So the more rectangular, better. Wow. <laughs> goes to that. Seagull chicks, when, they, when they're born, they beg from food, for food from the mom by opening their mouths. Mm. The mom regurgitates food. Mm. The chick begs for food by pecking on a red spot on a yellow beak. Mm. The mother, right? Mm. Now, Timber can find you don't need a a mother, you just take a beak and wave it in front of the chick. The chick begs from him. Mm. As far as this is concerned, the long thing with a red spot is mom. <laughs> Beg. Then you find you take a stick with three red stripes, three red stripes, not one pair. Chick goes berserk. It prefers that oh. to the original beak. It fetishizes it. It's created a masterwork of art. Now, what's happened there is through evolution, the mother seagull developed a trick of creating an optimum stimulus that more optimally titillates the visual areas in the chick's brain mm. than a real beak. So it's become a hyper beak, <laughs> or a super beak, right? It ignores the beak and picks the stick. Yeah. What's this got to do with human beings? I'm saying that if seagulls had an art gallery, all these gulls would go and assemble in front of the stick with the three red stripes, yeah. be mesmerized by pay thousands of dollars, yeah. not know why. Yeah. It doesn't resemble any real beak, right? right? So now same thing, art collectors in Beverly Hills or anywhere here are doing the same thing, like behaving like these gull chicks, going towards these strange objects, stimulate their brains in, in strange ways we do not understand because we don't understand the brain circuitry yet, yeah. but are hyperactivating these neurons, producing pleasing aesthetic yeah. effects, okay? Now, I've got nine laws like that, 10 laws discovered in my book, but none of these laws or none of the pr pr proposed theories of aesthetics, according to me, work really. They're really scratching the surface of the problem of what aesthetics is. Because none of those laws explain 
how you distinguish kitsch from the real deal. Yeah. You see the real deal, you know, it's real art. If you're a professional artist or art historian or, 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 or artistic person, refined art, artistic sensibility, how do you know which is the real thing? The answer is you can go forward, look, move from kitsch to the real thing. In fact, m most people begin with kitschy, yeah. silly stuff, right? And then they mature into the real thing. Right. If you, you claim to understand art, you should be able to point out to me if this work of art contains this key ingredient, these two, to fulfill these two criteria, then it's not kitsch. Until then, we have not understood art. Okay, so, so what, are those, what are those? I don't know yet. Oh. <laughs> Instead of, you can just say, why not do it by democratic vote? Why not just ask everybody? Yeah. It doesn't work because more people like kids right. than, 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 than the real one, you right, see? Right. So you need some criterion other than democratic vote. Yeah. And what is that criterion? And that's what you're groping towards. And, and, and could you actually reflect that in the brain? Yes. I mean, once you find out what the laws are, then we find out what parts of the brain are involved in, 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 in instantiating these laws and go from there. Rama stresses, understanding a phenomenon does not diminish its experience. Fair enough. But does neuroscience, neuroaesthetics, have ultimate power to explain art? Could there be a test case? Say, brain mechanisms that distinguish high art from kitsch, reducing the essence of art to activities in the brain. Is this possible even in principle? Again, I'm conflicted. Non-reductionists, of course, reject the paradigm that appreciation of art can be reduced to mechanisms of neurobiology. I go to Great Britain to meet a non-reductionist skeptic, the British neurologist and polymath Raymond Tallis. Does your understanding of the supra-neurological understanding of art have anything to say about the, the levels of, of art and the importance mm. of art? And you know, are we caught with a cultural relativism or are there truly differences in the qualities? I think that's such a good question because what drove my friend, who is uh, hitherto quite a sensible person, to use neuroscience to look at the impact of literature was he was very aware that there was a subjectivity in uh, saying this is great art and this is rubbish, you know, that Shakespeare's great art and Geoffrey Archer is rubbish. You know, he felt that was possibly somewhat subjective. So he had hoped by looking at the brain's response uh, to great literature versus the brain response to gibberish that we'd get a better response of uh, some different sort of response in great literature. But of course, as you imagine, uh, the response wasn't any different from treading into dog dirt accidentally on the pavement or whatever large stimulus may happen from time to time. Right, right. And, and the question is whether that is the result of, of uh, current technologies or something more fundamental, That's, uh, uh, that to me is an open question. And you'd also have to decide in advance what was great art in order to say, does great art have a different impact from lesser art? Right. In other words, it wouldn't, as it were, override any kind of prior judgment you make as to what is worthwhile art. I mean, you could just simply say, this art causes a, a big uh, burst of neural activity and this art causes a lesser bur what burst. Does that mean? But it doesn't in any way override any prior judgment. And so is there any way to get beneath that y using uh, understanding outside of art? I, I think you would feel that neuroscience is fundamentally I impossible in principle to be able to distinguish art, is that right? I think so. I mean, because it, what counts as art is first of all very culturally determined and its function has been different over the ages. There's not a, I've, I've given you one religious and so on and so forth. So I'm not too sure that we would ever advance our understanding of art or indeed the nature of the set experience 
by looking at brain activity, which can often be very similar in different circumstances, things that in response to different kinds of stimuli. So then art would then always be culturally determined in terms of what's good art, and there's no absolute standard? Well, if there is, neuroscience wouldn't be the one that would reveal it to who, us. Who would? I have to say, I have great faith in my own judgment uh, <laughs> on the basis of the kind of tuition I've received over the years. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel fairly confident that Shakespeare is better than Jeffrey, Jeffrey Archer, but that's confidential. <laughs> Among neuroscientists, Ray, as a neuroskeptic, is an admitted outlier. I love to listen to Ray. He's one of my intellectual heroes. But is he overly pessimistic? After all, neuroscience is a young science. In fact, the large majority of neuroscientists do not doubt that, ultimately, everything about the brain will explain everything about the mind, including art. What could give neuroscience that power? Could ultimate explanation of art relate to affect? How does the brain generate and process emotion? I put the question to the neuroscientist who pioneered affect and emotion in social cognition and decision-making, Antonio Damasio. So, in whatever situation we are placed, we react not only intellectually but effectively, as one can, can realize quite, quite easily, and the reactions we have to the objects that we call artistic or aesthetic is a very particular reaction because it is actually dominated by the aesthetics. It's dominated by the effect. And, and the two are so together that it's almost absurd to try to, to, to separate them. And whether we're talking about music or about painting or, or about a novel or a play, uh, you are uh, appreciating certain elements that are uh, clearly intellectual, the ones that we would describe as cognitive, those elements from the way they are positioned, for example, in, in a painting, or from the way they are positioned in, in a, a sound sequence, generate emotions. And those uh, emotions generate feelings. And that tie-up is, is very, very close. And that in, it creates this this world apart, which is the world of the arts. And it's something that uh, human beings have been exploiting, exploring and exploiting from very early on, you know, probably with this conjunction of both music and, uh, and painting in caves, and is with us now with a, a much more variegated uh, aspect of, uh, of arts. The beauty of it for me is, of course, the fact that it takes advantage primarily uh, of the affect component of our humanities. But it also, which is very interesting, allows us to explore our humanity in a sort of a proactive way. So I think that when people write plays or when they go to watch a play being performed or they deal with a film or with a novel, they are in fact rehearsing themselves for what's to come in the future. Because we have this prospective aspect to our minds. Our minds are, are of course, about the moment, but they are constantly also about the next moment and about the future. And whenever we can, we rehearse the future 
without paying too much attention to it as a rehearsal. And when we are watching a, a film or a play or reading a novel, we are engaging in a rehearsal that is being directed by the novelist or by the filmmaker. And it, it, it's guiding us. So it, it, it's that rehearsal aspect that is so interesting. But it's a rehearsal aspect that is confounded with emotions and feelings. And that's why it, it gives you an additional pleasure. So your rehearsal... Neuroaesthetics as a new subfield of neurobiology uses art as sense data, as a probe to understand how the brain works. Although art is often processed in one neural system, auditory for music, visual for images, our appreciation of beauty seems localized in the forebrain behind and above the eyes. The impact of art like that of sex registers throughout the brain, encompassing our whole being. With explanatory success, neuroscientists are becoming bolder, taking the art-brain challenge in both directions, not only using art to explain the brain, but also using the brain to explain art. Where are we now? While artistic perceptions are different, the artistic experience is similar. If the central question of aesthetics is the common experience of beauty, then the brain's center of beauty gives the answer. Universal principles of art cut across cultures, even across species, but understanding a phenomenon does not diminish its experience. Understanding all about the brain will never mean understanding all about art. Affect and emotion generated by the brain are the core of the artistic experience. Art has always brought insight as well as pleasure. Now the art-brain nexus brings us even closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.